0: Welcome to DLN Extend, the show where we recap the events of the week of the various Destination Linux Network shows. These include Destination Linux, Ask Noah, Linux for Everyone, This Week in Linux, Das Geek, Tux Digital, and Zebedee Boss Gaming. I'm Nate.
1: And I'm Eric. Last week, we did what we thought was a test recording, and it turns out we all liked it enough to release it as show zero. We got some feedback mentioning that he wanted us to give a little bit more of a personal intro because last time, well, we were a little excited, you know, Nate, how that goes, and we just jumped right in. So I have a background in IT as a sysadmin, support technician, and a product manager for software. I also build websites, and I've been using Linux since the early 2000s, both professionally and personally, and I started more on the professional side with Debian, for file servers, backup controllers, network services, things like that, where I had a real need in my professional life to find systems that were stable and easy to maintain. Linux was offering some pretty amazing tools, and that was my introduction to Linux. I didn't really start on the desktop. Until a little later than that. And I tried Mandrake and Sousa and some others. And really not until Ubuntu came out did I find something that worked well for me. I've always enjoyed Linux, but I was really doing it on my own. And I have to say that what changed for me is that recently being introduced to the community, both at Big Daddy Linux and some other places, certainly Destination Linux and the shows there, being part of this community and being able to share my passion and my interests... With Linux has really turned over a new leaf and, and brought new interest into this for me in a way that I just wasn't experiencing before. So, and of course, one of the other people that I've met that I've enjoyed spending time with and talking to is Nate. So, Nate, what's your background? How did you get started?
0: Well, I'm a—I'd call myself a, a Linux and vintage tech enthusiast. From childhood onward, I've I've always loved computers, starting with a Commodore 64, moving to the Amiga, begrudgingly going to Windows where I actually, for about four years of my life, I didn't even use computers because I disliked them so much, to uh, finding Linux in 2002. Now I have an almost unhealthy obsession with OpenSUSE Linux. I wasn't aware of this. (laughs) I I jumped from a few different distros, uh, starting with Mandrake, later becoming Mandriva. I tried Debian, uh, Ubuntu a little bit. But ultimately, OpenSUSE just kind of satisfied my, my requirements for what I wanted in a computer and a system. It had the blend of commercial with community, just the way I like it. The, just the right amount of savory and, and sweet is kind of how I look at it. Now I still do drag around the, uh, the Windows ball and chain for specific work tasks, but you know. That is what it is.
1: And I ended up doing the same thing. I mean, I my company used Windows pretty much for everything, and I didn't have a choice. I found myself running Linux in my own time, and that was more of the personal side. So I, I think a lot of us are in that same position, so I, I can sympathize.
0: Well, there was a time at work when all I ran was Unix, and I didn't even touch Windows, and I was happy to keep it that way. And then that changed, and so I had to be, had to do more Linux in my personal life to keep me from hating computers. So when I'm not playing or working with Linux, I play with vintage tech or single-board computers, because they're just fun. And uh, in the workforce, I'm a mechanical designer, and I've been known to use CAD just for fun, especially Leocad for creating LEGO models in virtual
1: space. Nice.
0: Also like you, I didn't start really with the community as being a huge part of of my uh, Linux life. I spent a lot of my Linux community time in the Mandrake or Mandriva forums and then moving to the OpenSUSE forums. And it actually only was maybe about a couple of years ago when I started really exploring and learning about the wider Linux community. And then it was actually about a year ago, also uh, big daddy Linux. And I've pretty much been kind of an addict of the community now. Like I I like to just talk with uh, with other nerds like yourself.
1: Yeah, it it really is something because I'm sure most of you out there experience the same thing where you have this interest in Linux and who do you talk to about it? Because, frankly, even non-Linux, just computers and technology in general, if you have an interest, people tend to kind of give you that look when you start talking passionately about technology. So to have people to talk to, you know, it's it, it's something.
0: Yeah, it's funny. Like when I, when I get excited about something like nerdy, even at work, I do work with some engineers that are, are Linux competent. But, uh, but they're not exactly Linux excited. So when I get excited about something in Linux, you can see that kind of glaze go over the eyes. Like they just, like, you, all of a sudden, like, they're not really sure what they're looking at, you know, when they're looking at you. It's it's always in a, a fun time.
1: <laughs> but I guarantee you that if they ever have any questions about Linux, they're going to come to you.
0: Oh, yeah. Uh, it doesn't happen very often, but yeah.
1: I think it might, ha- it start, might start happening more often, honestly. I, I have a sense, because you've, I mean, you've embarked on some projects at work where you've i guess you've sort of been told if you can prove that linux is a good replacement or option or alternative that it is something that you would be able to pursue
0: actually uh, a little more extreme than that they're actually pursuing doing development uh concept development stuff and they want somebody that can work with linux and python specifically so i am guess what i'm learning uh would it be python (laughs) yeah that's exactly it. Because I, I, the the goal is for me to actually move more into that role, do more Linuxy things at work, and get away from the from the Windows.
1: So this is this is almost a little unfair, I have to say. You already have a job you really enjoy, yeah, and you've somehow found a way to make it even more enjoyable. This is amazing.
0: It it is, and and actually, I'm that weirdo that, that skips into work on Monday, saying, "Yay, it's Monday! I get to go to work." And I'm I'm probably the only guy, uh, which may be why that actually happens. But you know. Yeah, there's there's probably something wrong with me.
1: Well, that may be true. and I, <laughs> We're not here to diagnose that. But I have to say that the idea that you were able to get some traction on that, if you truly see Linux as a, an open source in general, as a better alternative, not just an alternative, but a better alternative in many cases, it can be really frustrating to work in an environment where that's just not even a consideration.
0: It, that's that's really true. So I, I, I had a previous job where... They, uh, they frowned on being a creative thinker and I tried to use, no, actually I did use Linux and it was often frowned upon, but they didn't really wasn't anything stopping me. I just did it anyway. That was a frustrating job because you're like, when there's no wiggle room for creativity or divergent thinking, that, that, uh, that stranglehold, that, that's, that's where I don't thrive at all. Well, there's, it's not just me. There's, there's actually several, uh, I, I found now there are several Linux enthusiasts that I work with. And so they're, they're actually looking for more people that have that same kind of passion. Right now, it's just a matter of, on me, I need to learn Python and get good at it so I can start to transition my role. And uh, my, my boss is all for it and everything. So it's just a matter of time.
1: Well, I have no doubt you'll be successful. And honestly, um, Python's one of those things that I've always looked at and thought, I really should just take some time and dig into it a little more. I'll be curious to uh, hear your progress through that. And hey, maybe I'll learn something along the way.
0: I look forward to that. One of the things we wanted to do in the beginning of DLN Extend was to provide a recap of the topics covered by show. Now, we're not going to cover everything because then that would be the entirety of of our show, and then you're going to walk away bored and and disappointed. So I'm just going to kind of hit a few of the highlights. So for uh, Destination Linux, DL, the follow-up there, we know ZFS is now outpacing on Linux and is on FreeBSD, so you caught that excitement on ZFS for Ubuntu being, well, it's an experimental stage. What was your thought on that?
1: I mean, so look at OpenSUSE, right? They've been using ButterFS for a long time. And that's one of the sort of killer features, if you will, of, of OpenSUSE is the fact that if you did something wrong, you have Snapper and you can come back and, and roll that back. And the idea that you would be able to do that with ZFS on the root partition of Ubuntu. Uh, so I heard Martin Wimpress and, uh, and Popey talking about this on the Ubuntu podcast, their wishes for the LTS release of. 2004. And I think it was Popey that was talking about the idea of having a reset, right? And so you think about like Dell systems come with the, re- the uh, restore partition and the ability to just reset things. And you could see that using ZFS on the root partition would give you the ability to do something like that. And that's that's pretty exciting.
0: I didn't actually think of that, but that is, I think you put that really well. It's like a reset. It's like even with OpenSUSE, but I could do that. I could roll back to the very first installation and start over from, you know, two years ago, I guess. And I think it'd be better if all distributions had that, like not just OpenSUSE. As much as I love OpenSUSE and I like that standout feature of it, and I can say, you know, it's one of my reasons I like it, I really want more distributions to have that kind of feature, whether it be on ZFS or ButterFS. I don't really care. I mean, it works great in ButterFS, but I would rather see more of that because, you know, if Ubuntu, you know, up their game with ZFS on root, and it's really awesome, that's going to force the open SUSE community and SUSE to really up their game with ButterFS, you know, for SUSE. And
1: you could see it just becoming a thing, right? Like it just becomes a standard. A normal user, if you gave them a utility, let's say as part of the boot menu to go into a recovery option, and that it was as easy for them to literally just reset without having to download media and burn an ISO and all that kind of stuff, you've now made it even easier for people to use Linux.
0: Right. Again, I didn't even think about it in that that aspect, but I've been able to do that now for quite a long time. I haven't had to do it. That really is actually a really neat feature, and I hope that more Linux distributions get that. I really do. So Wendell from Level 1 Tech was on Destination Linux, and he was talking about how he started in computers, and uh, there was a segment about working on your own hardware. Now, Eric, did you play with hardware when you were a child?
1: I did. Well, so I, I did a couple of things. I was that kid that took apart all of his toys. So I would get the remote control car or, okay, you know, good. I remember getting the A-team van. <laughs> if you remember the, you know, the, the black yes. A-team van with the red stripe and the spoiler on the back, because you need a spoiler in a van, of course.
0: Right. For more speed. Uh,
1: but... So uh, the, f- the first thing I did was to take it apart and had it in like a hundred pieces and my parents came in and were just beside themselves. <laughs> so nice. it wasn't so much computer hardware necessarily, but it was just anything I could take apart electronics wise and just look at the circuitry and the wiring. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Now I got in trouble as a kid because I, um, I like taking things apart also. And I started taking apart the family dishwasher. Now I wasn't really admonished for it Exactly, but my dad started bringing me home things to take apart that were broken, and so I took apart all kinds of things. my year old wanted another controller for the PlayStation three because you know I only have old video game systems. It seems like I had two broken rock candy controllers one I knew the board was bad, the other one uh took one too many falls, and so the it couldn't hold the batteries in place anymore. I assumed that one was still good, and I told my oldest I said, Well, if you want another controller, you can take these two bits, and I told him what to do, you know, put this board in that case. We should have a working controller, and I gave him a screwdriver and a little bit of guidance, and he actually did it, and we have a now have another working controller. The amount of I don't want to say the word pride necessarily, but like that uh, that sense of accomplishment that my year old has had on fixing a controller is. Pretty, pretty great. He actually took with him for everywhere he went for quite a while. Not even connected anything, just to show off that he did this. It's really neat to see.
1: Yeah, I mean, the amount of self confidence that you build from, especially kids at that age. I mean, I see that with my daughter when she gets just engrossed in something and she's just absolutely absorbed. To see that level of concentration, and then when she's finished, she often produces amazing results. And the amount of pride and you know self confidence, it it really is. It's it's astonishing, and that those are so important those little things to build that kind of self-reliance. And you know, we could go off in a whole diatribe about how the world doesn't value their material goods anymore because they're not willing to fix them or take the time to figure them out. And Noah actually kind of went into that a little bit about when you own something, there's a certain amount of, you should know what it is. You should know how it works. You should know how to support it. So for them to learn those lessons early in life, I mean, that is just, it changes them in a way that for the rest of their lives, they have that in them.
0: And one of those things that, like, I, what I really enjoy about Linux is it that, that whole, that, that self-empowerment, learning how to use the operating system and empowering yourself to be able to use it and to expand that knowledge. You really own it. And then you have more of a, I don't say to say, maybe a passion or a connection or something with your technology. And it keeps you from, you know, relying on other people, I guess it keeps you from, uh, or in this case, a, a company. I mean, really, as much as I love OpenSUSE and, and MX Linux, if they went away, I have other options because, all these self-empowered people throughout the entire community basically keep it all going.
1: Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's definitely that tinkerer mentality, and I see that a lot in people. It's fun because even in people who aren't coming from a strong IT background, who see it as a curiosity or as a, an opportunity to learn something, and they'll get in and get their hands dirty and dig around and break things. And I mean, that that was my history on Linux, learning how to use it. I didn't magically acquire this knowledge. I spent many years frustrated installing a new distro Wiping the wrong partition, breaking something, having hardware issues, and that's just how you learn. I can't
0: remember how many times I broke Linux when I first started using it just because it's like, oh, well, this might make it better. Oh, that didn't make it better at all. I have to reinstall it because I don't know how to fix this.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But you can look at that as being frustrating and walk away, or you can look at it as a learning experience and figuring out what you did and then learning from it.
0: So something that Wendell brought up on Destination Linux was that the desktop lacks an evangelist similar to Linus Torvald's is for the kernel. What do you think of that?
1: It's a fair point in whether or not we could find one individual that has that amount of dedication. Linus is a pretty unique person when it comes to that. So would we find one person? I don't know. But I think the idea that when you look at something like Martin Wimpress just being put in the position of the Ubuntu desktop lead, I see that as being a positive thing because he is obviously very squarely focused on the desktop experience. And obviously it's Mate in his case, but you have to see that flowing back into Ubuntu Ubuntu proper, and then all of the other flavors as well. And then hopefully by virtue of just the strength of that, it influences the desktop environments and and the entire ecosystem in general. I'm not saying Martin Wimpress is that person, but I'm saying people like him in those positions that are passionate and motivated to make desktop Linux a better experience. It's absolutely a fantastic idea and something that I hope continues across all of the projects.
0: I think it should also be noted that Martin Wimpress... He inspires other people as, as does Alan Pope because of their, their demeanor, their, their striving for excellence is so that that only inspires other people. I mean, the reason I think Mate has been such a great release. Is, is because of how Martin Wimpress has inspired other people to be a part of the project that had that welcoming feel that community that you know I think Ubuntu is just nailing right now
1: Well and I have to say that people like like Alan Pope and Martin Wimpress, and I know we keep bringing them up but the reason is because they engage themselves they put themselves out there they do podcasts they go on shows going to different conferences and meetups and things like that so they really are in touch with the community and with the people who are using the desktop and I think that sometimes that's a piece that's missing in other projects or, you know, let's say the desktop environments. I'm not accusing, I'm trying to make a point that, you know, that that isn't happening. I just think that they sort of exemplify to me that spirit of engagement, listening to people, and then really making a difference where they can. Uh, Somebody
0: else who I think does a really good job of evangelizing the desktop is uh, Daniel Foray of The Elementary Project. Now, in all fairness, I, I don't care for the workflow of The Elementary Desktop, but I do like their intent. I like the direction they're going with it. I like what they're trying to achieve with it. And that alone excites me. Not to help with elementary so much, but to do a little bit more maybe for plasma or, you know, or XFCE, the things that I care about, maybe providing some feedback or bug reports. So the elementary project is essentially inspiring me to make my little area of Linux a little bit more tidy, I guess. And I think that that's a trickle down effect even, you know, from the, from the Mate project and so forth. And I, and I hope that that continues, that that's a, that that momentum continues in all these other projects. These great people are setting a standard of of making you know, greatness out of their projects.
1: And I think the important takeaway there is that just with like Mate, I'm not a huge fan of Mate, not because it's not good, but just because it doesn't fit me personally. And I agree with Elementary as well. And these aren't criticisms meant to take away from those projects because the ideas that they have and the dedication that they have to making their projects better, like you said, is inspirational. And they are making changes that benefit everybody because that flows upstream. They're using projects, they're making changes and improvements they make affect everybody. And so I may not use it, but that doesn't mean I don't value it and see the value in it and understand that it is something that's important and at the very least inspirational to other projects.
0: It also is something that you can, I can feel really good about recommending to somebody else as well.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, there, I wouldn't hesitate to, to recommend either of those.
0: No, they're, they're great projects. And uh, you know, if someone says, I want to try this, I might hand them elementary or mate even before my beloved open Sousa. Don't tell anybody that. That's, that's a secret between you and me.
1: Wait, that, we'll, we'll cut that part out. This week on Ask Noah, he continued his talk on how much privacy is enough and the idea that of privacy versus convenience and how almost always, or if not always, people will fall on the side of convenience. And that really it's up to companies to offer choices of convenience and privacy. And that the idea that people have to do it all themselves isn't realistic and is really unfair, particularly to people who don't understand privacy. He continues to really push the idea that people need to understand what they're giving away. The idea that free isn't free. No company is doing anything for anyone for free because that's not how commerce works. And you have to really think about what you're doing and what you're giving away. He mentioned the idea that He's not going to stop his child from, I think it was making a profile, basically the idea that this profile will now exist forever. And he sees the possibility of companies being able to offer a service of background checks or history, your profile history on the internet, and even being able to match you based on the projects you've worked on or the types of social things you've engaged in. And the idea that this is indelible and sticks with you, and the idea that the Internet of old was a little more forgiving in terms of being able to be anonymous, that people just don't really quite understand the importance of privacy.
0: Now, I will say that I'm a little back and forth on that issue. On one hand, I totally agree about the anonymity. It was a good thing. That's actually why I used the name Cubicle Nate for me. And then I started using my name with it. And so now I've just lost an anonymity. But I can appreciate the need for anonymity. Or what makes anonymity nice, but at the same time, then there's no accountability with anonymity. If you live in a larger city, a bigger city, you're just a person... Nobody cares, right? You're pretty much anonymous for the most part, you know, walking around or whatever. If you live in a small town, you are not so anonymous. People know who you are. You develop a reputation. So I kind of feel like the Internet today, in some ways, is all the worst parts about living in a small town, sort of. But some good parts, too, I think. And so I don't know. It's almost like you're more accountable at the same time because you're less anonymous. Maybe there's a, there's a degree of, of goodness in that, too. I, I don't know. i am not I'm not saying that for sure. But it kind of makes me think, all these keyboard warriors that we have like on, on the, the face space or the, or the, or the reddits or whatever are just absolute jerks online. Like they're just jerks. Would they be that way to your face? Like if you could, if you actually see them? And so I kind of think maybe it's not all bad. Now where I do think it is bad though is a violation. Like if you're out milling about in town and you, do something egregious, I think it's good that people know that, right? So don't do anything egregious when you're out in town. But at the same time, I don't want people looking in my windows either. So it's kind of a, it's a fine line. I, I have a fence. I like a fence in the backyard because I believe good fences make good neighbors, right? And so I, I feel like my operating system, my computer, my home network, that's where I want my privacy. But as soon as I decide to leave my home network, I realize I'm out in public. And there's nothing private about what I do unless I take extra steps to be private. That's how I've always looked at the internet from, from like 1997 onward.
1: I think there's a nostalgic view of the early internet and particularly around anonymity. And I do take Noah's point about young people making mistakes and the idea that if you're young, you may not you know know yourself well enough or you may change and you may realize at some point you aren't happy with some of that information that's out there. And in the old days, you would have... Been able to disassociate yourself with it, or there was never anything identifiable in the first place to really prove it was you. But I also don't agree with a completely anonymous open internet, in particular for, let's say, adults who should know better, who do things like troll other people or cause harm and are able to get away with it essentially because they're anonymous. Would someone who would online attack you? or be extremely hostile or rude to you, do that to your face? And in my opinion, no, they wouldn't in most cases. Now, I've met some very rude people And I'm not saying those people don't exist, but I think a lot of the people who will take liberties and be very aggressive and very opinionated online would never do that to a human being staring them in the face. And so that social experiment, that portion of the experiment, I think is a little out of step with what the reality of social interaction between human beings actually is. There are good parts and bad parts. It's wonderful to be anonymous if you're in a society or in a country that stifles your ability to express yourself or have personal liberty. So the internet gives those people in particular the tools to do those things, and I think that's a wonderful thing. In the case where people use that as, a, as an excuse to attack other people, I, I just cannot claim that that is a positive use of that technology.
0: I didn't really think about it entirely in, in that aspect of if you're in a, an area that has reduced liberties, right? I think that's where anonymity becomes more important. That's another good point, and I'm, I'm going to say I don't have the answers for that. Because I am spoiled and I live in a country that does have freedoms. That's a really good point. And I I don't know. I really don't have an answer for that.
1: (laughs) I think that there are certain aspects of the internet that benefit from people not being anonymous. And I think that the real problem is that companies abuse that because they're allowed to. And Noah made a good point about the fact that companies will collect data that they don't even know what they'll do with it but they want to collect it because that's just their mode of operation. And they figure at some point, you know, they'll find a way to monetize it or benefit in some way from it. And so they overstep the boundaries of what would be considered proper amounts of information to collect. If I'm using your service and you need to know, like you mentioned VS Code before about telemetry, If you're collecting telemetry on your platform and you want to see how I use it and you want to see how I'm interacting with it and how I find things and how I navigate around, that's all perfectly acceptable to me. And even if you know who I am specifically because I'm logged in or there's a cookie set or something like that, fine, I get that. But if you track me when I leave your website, that's not cool. I don't agree with it. And I, Yeah, that's not cool. I totally agree with that. Yeah, and tracking my behavior and my habits and things like that oversteps anything that I can consider to be normal practice and whether or not that company finds that to be profitable, that's where laws come in. And I think that's where we see the failing of governments and institutions in policing those practices
0: it's the difference between being stalked out in public versus when i enter your house yeah you can watch me you Now, if i go on your website yeah that's fine for you to watch me but once i leave your website once I leave your service don't don't stalk me that's probably my area of delineation there and i think protecting myself from being stalked on the internet whether by a commercial or governmental entity that's where i draw the line i think in, in my mind
1: It's a pragmatic view, right? I mean, the the reality is we use services that we know are not free and that these companies monetize them in order to fund the development and support of them and to be profitable and in many cases, hugely profitable. And we, we make that trade-off. You and I make that trade-off specifically because we know what we're giving up. The problem is that most people don't think about it or don't know the amount of data they're giving up and how much these companies know about them. And I think fundamentally that is my problem right. with the way these businesses operate. Not that they collect the data, not that they sell the data, they use it to advertise to me or to make money in exchange for using their products for free. It's that they overstep those bounds and they, they take it to, frankly, like a creepy stalker level, like you said.
0: I'm okay with, when I go into a supermarket, you know, like the, my, lo- my local supermarket, I know that there are cameras watching me as there should be and I'm fine with that. But if those cameras follow me see which way I go home and see if I stop at a, you know, at the Dollar General or whatever, that's actually where I have a problem. Like it, there's there's a limit there. I don't know where that, li- that line is exactly. I think that's kind of how I look at that.
1: But that brings in that argument of, well, we need to do this surveillance and this is the more the, the government entity side of things where we need to have this access. Like they talk about having back. Backdoors and encryption so that, you know, what if there's terrorists? And yes, those are legitimate concerns. I cannot defend, you know, those people and their actions, but you're essentially giving them the ability to use a power that they have demonstrated over and over again that they will abuse and that the overwhelming majority of people that are abused by that system are completely innocent and have nothing to do with terrorism or anything else horrendous like that.
0: This week on Linux for Everyone, Jason Evangelo brought up that the Plasma desktop is almost as light on resources as XFCE. Did you catch that? I
1: did. And, you know, there has been a trend absolutely over the last year or so, maybe even longer, that I've noticed that in running Kubuntu specifically, but Plasma on multiple distros, that it definitely is lighter. It depends a lot on the distro itself and the services that they're starting and all of the sort of packages and software that are running. But ultimately, the shell itself, so Plasma, does seem to be very lightweight.
0: I totally agree. So he, he compared, I think, Ubuntu, KDE Neon, and uh, Kubuntu, right? That's what it was. And he and Zeb both ran some numbers on that. So he did a Forbes article as well with, with some more details. I decided that I would run a very similar study myself. And can you guess on what distribution I ran this study?
1: I'm going to guess that it was OpenSUSE.
0: <laughs> wow, man, you're good. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, it was. And I did it in a VM. And and the reason I did it in a VM is uh, I wanted to make sure that the environment was sterile, you know, that it was a consistent environment between. Yeah, like for
1: like, that makes sense.
0: Right. and And that was the easiest way for me to do like for like. So I set up a virtual machine with OpenSUSE on it, and since OpenSUSE does very nicely uh, multiple desktop environments without you know crashing and exploding, I shouldn't say explode. Nothing ever explodes in Linux. I, I want to test and see how on the same installation, so that I know everything is identical, how much memory usage a vanilla Plasma desktop with a terminal and Firefox open with just the OpenSUSE search page versus XFCE, the exact same thing. Now, the only thing I did do is, I just don't like light themes, so I did make them both dark theme. That was the only change I made. And after doing this, Plasma used 765 megabytes. On OpenSUSE tumbleweed, and by the way, it's Plasma 5.17, and then uh, XFCE 4.14 used 732 megabytes. So the difference was 33 megabytes between the two, and I thought that was quite shocking, actually. Now that's with with Firefox open, obviously too. I probably should have taken one like before Firefox, but I just wanted to do the exact same test as as Jason Evangelo and Zeb did for uh, Linux for Everyone and, and his Forbes article, and so. Jason's supposition that by 2020, Plasma could be the lightest desktop. I thought he might be right on that. I don't know. I mean, I love XFCE, but I mean, Plasma is kind of nipping at its heels.
1: I think these are all fair comparisons, and I think it's an interesting exercise to see how these desktops, what they're using just as a base up you know how much memory of your system are they going to use now personally for me honestly this is just not a topic that causes much excitement for me because I have a system that has lots of memory and frankly when I'm looking at a desktop environment the amount of use of resources it has isn't necessarily the highest priority for me it's much more about usability the features it's giving me and so when I look at that and this is not meant to be a criticism on xfce it is plasma provides me with a set of Capabilities that XFCE doesn't. And if it does that in a way that is as performant and uses a similar set of resources or amount of resources, that can only be a good thing. So I guess my point is that it's, I'm glad to see that KDE Plasma has put emphasis on performance and the amount of resources it uses. But ultimately, I think to me and maybe to other people as well, that isn't really the biggest focus. Although I will say, that I know that there is a large contingent of people that the number one value of Linux is resurrecting hardware that isn't running well on the operating system that came with it. I guess the best way to characterize it is that Linux, for many people, is not seen as the first operating system for a given piece of hardware, but the one that comes after and either solves the problem of that original operating system, and I'm, obviously I'm talking about Windows, being you know, either not supported anymore or they're not happy with the newer version. version. Version of it for whatever reason. And I've sort of moved beyond that, where I'm not a Windows user anymore. I don't see my hardware when I purchase it as being primarily a Windows system. I see it as a system that is going to be dedicated to Linux, and I'm making those choices perhaps in a different way than other people. That's really my take on it. It is interesting to me. See the plasma is getting lighter, and I don't disagree that maybe it will be a good or the better choice. But I think a lot of that just comes down to my—I just don't think XFC is as usable, frankly. Like it, every time I try to use it, I just feel like it's very piecemeal. Basic. Yeah.
0: Here's my thought on it. Now I'm a plasma user. I'm talking to you right now from an OpenSuSE tumbleweed machine running the latest plasma. I think plasma is the premier desktop. By the way, it's just 5.17.0, so I think you probably got me beat by 0.1. I think it is the premier desktop, and, and I like it. It does everything I want it to do. It's, it's great. I have this Lenovo 110s. It's got two gig of RAM, 32 gigabytes of storage space. There's not a single fan in it. It's this little laptop, but it has a decent keyboard, better than what HP puts on their Premiere machines. It runs OpenSuSE Plasma fantastically well. So for me, what excites me on this is, you know, my primary machine. I've got I've got oodles of of headroom in it. So it is not. It's a non-issue. The the memory. You know, whether if it's 33 megabytes less or 100 megabytes less. If it was 100 megabytes more, even half a gig more, it really wouldn't matter very much on these lower spec machines that I I like to keep around like right now I have my kids got a couple of uh, cheap books that they little little, uh, netbooks that they use and I run XFCE on there because it's it has such a small memory footprint it works great for everything that they need to do and as soon as there's any kind of real load on it I mean really sync thing is kind of a strain on these machines you can't run Rosetta Stone at the same time as sync thing apparently the the audio starts to get a little choppy and so like I need every bit of extra I can squeeze out of those machines until you know those things die but you know when when an eight-year-old and six-year-old is using it I'm not going to give them a new machine that's where i see the value is uh a part of it's also like the, the digital divide thing in, in a way in my house there's a digital divide too my kids got a, a little netbook and i got a rather nice dell that's a digital divide right there to some to some degree but i can kind of close that a little bit because of how resource frugal uh, plasma and xfce are so where i like it is plasma has way better features than xfce in, in my opinion everything from dolphin to how configurable it is. Although XFCE is really nice in that, that regard. I, I just happen to like Plasma better. So seeing Plasma get on the same level as XFCE, that says a lot. It further underscores how good that project is. Although now I'm thinking maybe I should go CDE. Did he ever, ever use the common desktop environment? I have, yeah. Now if I could run that, hmm, I think that uses maybe 20, 20 megabytes.
1: You know, one of the reasons that Kd Plasma is is interesting to me, and this is not a knock on XFC because I know that they, you know, Sean Davis does a lot of work on that and the Ubuntu team. And just they came out with 4.14 recently. There was a four-year gap between development cycles. Um, not that they didn't support security updates and, and other things like that, but in terms of the speed at which they're able to deliver new features. I just There's something about KDE Plasma and the fact that they are pushing the new releases and that I'm able to access them and use them and run them. That just appeals to me in a way that I know XFCE to a lot of people, the appeal is that it is stable, that it is everlasting, that Peppermint and some of these other distributions that use XFCE are so stable simply because they're using XFCE and it's a known commodity. And I appreciate that. I get that. I understand why a lot of people want that experience. But my experience of wanting something that's a little faster paced than that and being able to have that be as... Performance. So the the argument of XFCE being lightweight is less important now, and really it comes down to, do you want something that is updating regularly and changing things? And I know to some people that's frustrating, or do you want the stability and sort of solid nature, unchanging nature of something like XFCE?
0: I think that you just actually hit the unique competitive advantage that XFCE will continue to have. If, let's say, Plasma and XFCE are on par with one another, I think I would still use XFCE on some machines because it, it's kind of the baseline. It's almost like a measuring stick, kind of your your uh, your your minimum viable product of desktop environments. If that makes any sense, right?
1: It, yeah, no, it gives you everything you need right. to run a modern desktop operating system.
0: In in a way, it might actually be a better choice. Let's say for you know for grandma to have XFCE than than Plasma because she can just use XFCE. It's not going to change when those updates roll down because she's probably going to be an OpenSUSE tumbleweed. Of course um, she is. <laughs> Well, Plasma might confuse her because the it is changing. you know One is the leading edge and the other is not. The There's more of a constant. And I, I think that's the advantage.
1: Well, you mentioned the idea of netbooks and lower powered hardware. And I know that I don't necessarily use those systems. And it's not that I don't see the value in them. I just, for me, I don't use them. But I've had the idea of the Pinebook Pro and just how interesting that new hardware is. And when I think, I think, there, you know, most people look at that and say, well, they're going to run Mate. They're going to run, you know, XFC based Desktop, And I think, well, hey, if KDE Plasma is as lightweight and is running well on your netbooks, I have to imagine that something like the Pinebook Pro with Kubuntu, maybe, or something like that with a KDE Plasma desktop would actually run pretty well.
0: Yeah, I think so too. I think where K D Plasma could really benefit is if they had a, um, there's almost like an easy setting for how much you want it to do. Like I know it's supposed to do it somewhat automatically, like it it scales itself based on the hardware somewhat, but if if you could actually have it so it, it adjusted itself.
1: Someone mentioned the compositing. Right. is being like, so maybe those those lower end systems don't have good graphics controllers. And and then the rebuttal to that was, well, just turn it off. You know, I run compositing off on Plasma and it runs just fine. So I agree with you. I think there are ways that you can tune it even further than what they do. So if I tried to run Kubuntu, maybe it wouldn't run great because of that. But I know I have the ability because it's Plasma and has all of those capabilities that I can tune it in a way that it would probably run very well.
0: Yeah, that's how I look at it. Maybe a little more accessible or more visually in your face, tuning plasma to be more performant versus more visually appealing. You know, some kind of a toggle there, just like, like an easy toggle would be nice. So Eric, this is our first official DLN Extend episode. What do you think?
1: Well, I think that Ryan had said in the Destination Linux announcement of the show that we were going to have some contrary opinions, and I don't think we've disappointed him in that respect.
0: I would kind of call it the uh, DLN rebuttal.
1: Uh, (laughs) I think that what I've seen in the discussion about the shows on the Discourse Forum and Telegram and elsewhere is that people do want to discuss these things and do have differing opinions. And so I think that's hopefully what we're bringing here is the idea that Ryan and Michael and Noah and Zeb have their opinions on these things and they're allowing us to express ours and they're not always going to be the same.
0: I enjoy that about this because you know this is not an echo chamber at all. It's a, a place we can actually discuss and dig into a little bit deeper, you know, because we got the time. Uh, are these different issues or these different topics, and, and look at it maybe from a, a slightly different view than than the uh, highly privacy conscientious Ryan and Noah would have, and and maybe look at it from a different a different lens.
1: Absolutely, and I think that this is the intent of the show is to continue talking about these topics and to fit right in with that everyone can discuss these with destination linux network there's a telegram group there is a discourse forum there's a mumble server and a discord server as well you can find all of that information as well as more information on the shows and creators themselves on destinationlinux.network
0: So Eric, where can we find more of you?
1: My primary outlet for my content is my YouTube channel. And so I have videos about lots of different things, mostly about problems that I find for myself and how to fix and can't find great information. It's always going to be about Linux and open source and some web content because it's the other stuff I I do. How about you, Nate?
0: Well, when I am not doing a podcast with you, I have some of my own little blatherings that I have on my personal website, cubiclenate.com And from there, you can get to you know, my own little podcast and, and my YouTube mess that I do have. I don't, I don't have very much there, but most of my stuff is in, in writing form. And of course, you can get me on Telegram, Discourse, and, uh, and Discord, pretty much at cubiclenate anywhere over there. And uh, my ears will perk up and I'll I'll respond. I'll be right there. Well, thank you for joining us, taking the time out of your week to listen to yet another podcast. I want you to know your feedback is absolutely welcome. We'd like to hear about your experiences and opinions and tell us, hey, I think you're right or, hey, I think you're wrong or, hey, I think you missed this. And I would really like to hear that because sometimes, you know, I don't even know what I'm thinking. And hearing that additional input and getting that feedback strengthens my opinion and and sharpens my resolve.
1: And I have to say that I hope you enjoy listening to this even a fraction as much as I enjoy doing it because I enjoy spending time with Nate talking about tech. And like I mentioned earlier, the idea of community and having others to discuss these things with something that I have a great passion for and just genuinely enjoy doing and talking about. And hope that you join us next time on DLN Extend.
0: See ya.